The China and Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Witt University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on Africa-China relations through innovative training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.co.za. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, a senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, in our last show, we talked about the confusion that a lot of people have about the Belt and Road. And I published a post on LinkedIn and on Medium where I said, if you're confused about what Belt and Road is, well, you're not alone. And we ended our show last week with Eric Meister Lino, or you know, where you and I kind of said, ah, can't figure out what this thing is. And what was interesting was that I got a lot of feedback from Chinese uh, listeners and Chinese readers on LinkedIn who said, what are you talking about? The Belt and Road is pretty straightforward. It's a vision. It's not a policy. It's not an agenda. And I kind of walked away from these discussions thinking, wow, we look at this from two totally different points of view. Chinese people for the past six, seven years have been hit by a barrage of messaging, of propaganda, of news coverage. And so Belt and Road for them means something very, very different than what it means for the West and in the United States and Europe in particular, but Africa as well. Whereas we've talked about on a number of previous shows the Chinese have been god-awful terrible in communicating not just about Belt and Road, but in general. So it's not surprising that people in places like Africa are confused about what exactly is Belt and Road. Is it a development program? Is it a geostrategic uh, you know, agenda that the Chinese have? Is it about military, like in Djibouti? Is it about you know, a, a, you know, sending raw materials to China and then finish goods back to those parts of the world? So that to me was so interesting that our show last week revealed these huge discrepancies between how people perceive Belt and Road. One final comment before I, I, I kind of turn it over to you. Somebody pointed out to me, they said, the Belt and Road is like the Bush administration's global war on terror. And I thought, wow, that's, that's interesting. But what it was was so ambiguous that it allowed a lot of different people to attach their own agendas to this vague vision. So I thought those were very interesting responses to our discussion last week. Yes, it's, it provides a quite an interesting kind of different spin on it. You know, I, I guess it opens the the possibility to have a conversation about how the Belt and Road isn't really a plan, but more of a a kind of a channeling of energy. You know, kind of that 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 there's a, a decision that okay, energy and capital and you know human effort are going all of those are going to be channeled in this particular direction. You know, um, and then what the, the particular projects that happen within that, th those those projects aren't necessarily centrally decided. Um, but you know, but but the, the kind of general general direction of where those projects are going to happen, that is a central decision. I mean, that's kind of where I'm at the mo at the moment. But I'm I'm sure I'm wrong on a number of different different levels. Well, I got to be honest with you, Kobus. You don't sound entirely confident in your description <laughs> of what Belt and Road is. I mean, it was you know you're stretching right there. But uh, we thought mm. it would be interesting today to get a Chinese perspective on this because we've heard a lot from the West on Belt and Road. We've heard a lot from Africa on the Belt and Road. But what we haven't heard 
is the Chinese side. Now, there is no single Chinese voice on this other than maybe Xi Jinping himself. I'm not so sure he's going to come on our show, but nonetheless, we should put an offer out anyway. So we thought, let we went out into our network and we said, who can we find that can talk to us about what Belt and Road is? And I think this would be so important for our listeners in Africa and those studying Africa to really gain some understanding of this. Now, remember, Belt and Road is not an African initiative. Africa in just a few countries and just a small part of the continent is connected with it. So it's important that we maybe broaden our focus today beyond the African continent to look at what's happening in other parts of the world, namely the Americas, South America, Central America, as well as Eastern Europe, and now Italy for the first time. So we are so happy that Zhu Zheng, who is an independent analyst, who focuses on risk analysis, emerging uh, markets, and Chinese outbound investment, is here to join us. And he joins us on the line from Warsaw, Poland. And so a very, very good afternoon to you, uh, Zheng. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you for having me here, Eric. Well, let me just before we get started, let me just introduce a little bit more about your background uh, so that people can have a better understanding of your expertise in Belt and Road. You provide in-depth analysis for Chinese investors uh, you know, on about international stock markets, real estate, and political economy for countries along the Belt and Road. You're also a columnist on international affairs for the Chinese financial newspaper Caixin and a research fellow at the China CEE Institute. Now, for those of you not familiar with China CEE Institute, it's very, very interesting. The CEE stands for China, Eastern Europe, and it's China's first think tank that's independently registered in Europe. Uh, Zhang has been to more than 40 countries, and he's now doing a six-month field study on Chinese investments in Europe, where he's traveling from Serbia to Belarusia and now in Poland. And that's why we are so happy to be able to talk to you today, Zhang. Uh, I think we're going to put out another disclaimer very quickly here before we get into our discussion. Uh, Zhang is not an African specialist, so that's not why we have Zhang on the show today. But rather, he's an expert in Chinese emerging market analysis. And more importantly for us, he speaks directly with Chinese investors and clearly through the media to a Chinese audience. And one of the things that we want to try and get out of our discussion today is what are the themes and the topics that Chinese people are having about the Belt and Road that may shed some insight into what we are not understanding from reading the international press, the African press, and particularly in the United States and Europe as well. So with that in mind, Zheng, thank you again for joining us. No problem. Okay. I'm going to give you a really simple question, but I think you're going to have a hard time with it, okay? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you are a guy who has spent a lot of time traveling to countries in Latin America. You're in Europe right now. You are on the proverbial Belt and Road. So you should know better than anybody. What exactly is the One Belt, One Road? Well, I will say One Belt, One Road is a vision, Chinese vision to connect the world. Um, the, I think the key element of One Belt Run is that it's commercial. It's a big business idea to do win-win business with other countries. So most people, especially from the West, they are very concerned about China's so-called uh, strategic or political uh, ambition to dominate the world by uh, this One Bill, One Road initiative. Uh, from my point of view, I think it's um, uh, overthinking. From the Chinese side, we just want to do business with other 
uh, countries. So I think one bill, one road, just a business plan, a huge business plan to uh, do business with other countries. Um, to which extent does the Belt and Road still have a geographical component? You know, so obviously, in, in like around from 2013 to roughly 2015 or so, there were there was a map that was circulating. Um, you know, with with these two routes, one overland and one over sea, both essentially connecting China with Western Europe. Um, to which extent is the connection between China and Western Europe still a, a big? Uh, you know, kind of pre- preoccupation for the Belt and Road, and to which extent has it essentially trans, you know, tra- moved beyond geography as, as you know, completely? Well, I think that's a uh, interesting um, question. So um, recently, there's two uh, school of geography. One is called geo geoeconomic, uh, which is how economic and geo geography uh, play with each other, interact with each other. One is called uh, geo geopolitics which is how uh, politics and the geography uh, interact with each other. I would say one bell, one row is mainly about uh, geoeconomic. Um, so uh, usually China try to build a railway and a highway from China to Europe. Um, but our end goal is to send Chinese products or foreign products to China um, to do uh, win-win business deals between those uh, countries along one belt, one road. So uh, the main purpose uh, to for this um, huge infrastructure plan is to connect the world so uh, trade and uh, investment can happen. It's not like sending Chinese troops to like uh, Eastern Europe. It's, it's just uh, not uh, the case. Now, you do not work for the government, so you do not speak on behalf of the government, and I'm not going to ask you to speak on behalf of the government, but I, I am curious because you have brought up a lot of the same talking points that the government has, win-win development, it's just business. But what makes China so interesting is that the line between business and politics is not the same as it is in, say, the United States or Japan, where they don't, you know, the United States does not have state-owned enterprises that get credit from the China or the Exim Bank in the same way that the Chinese do and doesn't have the resources, and it doesn't have the alignment of the political objectives and the commercial objectives the same way that the Chinese do. I don't actually attach any value to that. There's two different systems. They're behaving in two very different ways. But I, I'm wondering if you can see why people in other parts of the world are concerned and struggle to understand the idea that it is just business when you have, in fact, a very prominent role of the state that's actually behaving in this way. So that's where, again, where we're struggling to understand what is Belt and Road. If it's just business, then you would have private companies doing it, not state-owned enterprise doing it. And because the state is involved, it makes people think that it's more than just geoeconomics, but it's actually geopolitics. And what do you think when you're in places like Europe and you're talking to people like that and they have these kind of questions? How do you respond to that? How do you answer those? Well, I would say first, if the state is involved, it does not necessarily mean the state have a uh, plan to do some military or like uh, geoeconomic uh, stuff. Um, the state just uh, maybe just simply want to do uh, improve its economy and uh, help its country, its company to do business in foreign countries. So uh, that's the first point when the state 
is involved, it does not mean the state is interested in other political activity. That's the first point. Uh, the second point, uh, why a Chinese state is so involved in this uh, One Bell, One Road initiative. Uh, that's because Chinese uh, economic structure is very um is very how to say stay state focused. We have lots of SOEs, and uh, if we look at the infrastructure uh, sector, most of those um, companies doing business abroad they are state owned. Also, the energy sector. Um, so, if we're talking about uh, infrastructure and energy and the mining as well, uh, we cannot uh, avoid. Uh, those state-owned companies because it's just uh, the uh, domestic economic structure of China. Um, so when China do, doing business with other countries, so it may export its uh, domestic in economic uh, structure to abroad. Uh, that's why you can see lots of Chinese companies, especially state-owned companies, they are doing business in countries. But do you understand like why people are concerned, though? Do you, I mean, is that an under, do Chinese people and yourself and Chinese stakeholders, because it doesn't seem like they understand why people around the world, not just in Europe or the United States, but in lots of countries, are concerned about what you've just said, that the fact that is they are state companies and that there may be something, but they don't really know. Do you understand? I mean, is that something that, that people think about or it, Chinese people and Chinese in the discussions that you have on Caixing and with your clients and others they don't talk about that. Um, well, I think this concern is legit. Um, but I think uh, foreigners need to really understand um, when those SOEs go abroad, they, um, how do you say, they they don't have their own, uh, they don't have uh, their own like political agenda. They just want to do business uh, with foreign countries. Um so uh, when when people think when people see Chinese SOEs coming to places like Africa or uh, Europe, they get scared because they think it's a uh, machine from the Chinese huge Chinese state. But it's not the case. When China, for example, when China want to do business in one countries, you can see uh, several Chinese state-owned companies. They are uh, competing with each other for the same project. Um, if China, a Chinese state is a huge uh, united machine, it will not happen. It will not allow several SOEs competing for the same project, which costs which costs China a lot of uh, money because uh, now the price is lower. So uh, people just think, oh, China is a huge uh, united machine, but it's not happening. We uh, when we do one bell one, it's still the uh, small companies or SOEs. They are doing the job, and uh, they are not. Uh, uh, one united unit, uh, which uh, people think. A lot of the discussion, in, especially in Africa, around the Belt and Road Initiative, focuses on infrastructure, um, and of course that that's one of the reasons, you know, among other reasons, because Africa so is so uh, fixated at the moment on infrastructure in in order to develop. But of course, as you've pointed out, you know, a very large part of the BRI has to do with trade. So I recently read an interesting paper um, that that pointed out that that now that the the train, the overland train connection. 
between China and Europe is actually up and running. Um, you know, and there's many, many trains kind of traveling between China and Europe all the time. What they frequently find is that the trains that go from China to Europe are all full, full of products to sell. But there's actually not that much that the European Union can sell back to China. And so frequently the trains that go back to China from Europe are half full or even empty. Um, so how, how do you foresee the fact that China manufactures so much and almost all of its BRI partners don't manufacture nearly as much? Um, how does that impact that trade imbalance? How does that impact the BRI as a whole? Actually, it's a very important question from China. That's uh, also one of the reasons I'm now doing the uh, research project in Europe because what you raised is definitely a uh, concern from the China side. Um, if you look at the cargo train from China to Europe uh, and the back, uh, you see actually there's a lot of government, government subsidy in this um, railways. Um, and uh, you you are right, uh, from Europe to China, uh, lots of uh, cargo trains are empty. But we have to see the development. If we, we compare it to now with, say, five years ago or three years ago, it has improved dramatically. Now, um, five years ago, three years ago, almost all the uh, uh, cargo train lines, they are like, uh, they are suffer loss, they suffer losses. But now you can see some lines, they are actually profitable. And uh, um, the um, the goods from Europe to China actually are increasing. Um, so but I'm not sure about uh, like five years ago, or five years later or three years later, how it will happen. But if you look at the past three years, actually uh, this situation is improving. But to what extent, it's still a question because um, uh, because the economic structure of China and the Eastern Europe or Central Europe, they are actually... Um, I cannot, you cannot like uh, magically uh, uh, create or uh, try to organize a cargo line which which can uh, change the economic structure of those countries. Uh, and, you know, trade is, is really based on economic, economic structure of those countries. So, um, yes, it seems it's proving, but to extend those all uh, cargo line will be uh, profitable, I'm not sure yet. Support for this podcast comes from the Africa China Reporting Project at Witt University School of Journalism in Johannesburg. The ACRP provides reporting grants, workshops, and other professional development opportunities for both African and Chinese journalists. Follow the ACRP on Twitter at Witt's China Africa or visit africachinareporting.co.za for information about grants and upcoming seminars. Let's turn to the question of debt, because debt is really a very important part of the Belt and Road initiative here. And it's important in a couple different ways. Number one is that China's using debt as a way to facilitate the acquisition of natural resources. So in places like Angola, it is collateralizing uh, Angolan oil in order to purchase oil. And then in exchange, it is building infrastructure. So there's a, an equitable balance there in some respects that they're giving and getting. But at the same time, in some countries, including in Eastern Europe, there is growing concerns that the amount of debt that the Chinese government is putting onto countries that may or may not be able to repay it is getting too high. And this is really the focus of concern in the West. And the West 
has some legitimate reason to be worried because they are concerned that if the Republic of Congo or if Belarusia or some other country collapses under the weight of Chinese debt, that it won't be the Chinese that end up paying for it. It'll be the IMF or the World Bank or Western governments that in the past have come to rescue these countries. That is part of the concern. The other part of the concern is that China will, of course, use the leverage of debt to exact uh, political influence. So I'm curious, when you talk about Belt and Road and this question of debt, uh, again, with your stakeholders and in the media and what you're reading, is there a concern in the Chinese media and the, among Chinese stakeholders about the debt issue in the same way that there is with the West? Or is that something totally different? Um, so if you look at the Chinese official media, they will say it's a bullshit. Uh, they think China is actually helping those countries uh, to develop its infrastructure. But um, from my independent uh, research, um, and I'm a country risk analysis, which means I analyze uh, the sovereign risk of those countries, I see lots of those projects, they are very risky in terms of financial returns. So uh, from the China side, if uh, I'm the president of uh, China or like a president of those uh, banks, if someone say, okay, uh, let's uh, give money to, uh, for example, uh, Gango or Montenegro to build this highway, um, I think from a financial, um, financial project, from financial terms or from the project management terms, I think those projects are very risky. Uh, I will not do that. But from those countries' perspective, um, I think it's actually good. Um, now I'm in Poland, and uh, last month I was traveling around uh, uh, Balkan countries like uh, Serbia and Montenegro. You know, Montenegro has a huge Chinese uh, infrastructure investment. Uh, the, uh, it's uh, maybe its first uh, highway, and uh, uh, it's uh, count like ten percent of I've got ten percent or like twenty percent of its uh, total GDP. Um, some people think, well, this project is very risky for Montenegro. I'm not sure if they will uh, able to pay pay back for it. But from Montenegro's perspective, um, they think this project is very good. It's um, because its main um, industry is uh, uh, tourism. And if they have this uh, highway, it can help its uh, increase tourism uh, revenue. But they have tried to borrow money from IM, from EU, and they also all, all say no. And then now they turn to China, and China say yes. If I'm I'm the Chinese, uh, Chinese top manager from the China side, I'll probably not do that. Uh, because too risky, but I don't know why. Like uh, the China just borrow money to Montenegro, but from Montenegro perspective, I think it's, they are think it's quite good because they only have two options. One is pull forever, one is borrow money from China, uh, build the highway, and increase the toy tourist revenue. There's some possibility, of course, uh, the uh, project will fail or like the project cannot achieve the initial goal. Um, but there's hope anyway. Um, if they don't get money from China, they don't see the future uh, of the country. So uh, from Montenegro's perspective, they are quite happy because now they finally see the hope for their country to uh, develop. 
And funny enough, uh, after China agreed to give money to Montenegro, EU began to stand out, stand up, say, "Oh, you should be uh, very concerned about Chinese loan there. It's a that uh, uh, trap." And then Montenegro says, "Oh, so before we borrow money from China, we uh, we turn to you, and uh, you decline. Our, <laughs> uh, and uh, where were you when we tried to borrow the money?" So from their perspective, also from Serbia's perspective, uh, they think EU is very uh, hypocritical. So um, they think China is a better partner. So as, as you mentioned, you work a lot in risk analysis mm-hmm. um, and with with Chinese um, corporate clients. What what are th- what are some of their concerns um, around the Belt and the Belt and Road Initiative and 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 doing business in all of these different countries? Well, um, so. If, if you look at uh, uh, Chinese investment in developing countries like 10 years ago, you see lots of failed cases, um, especially regarding political risk. Um, so now I think Chinese companies are more and more um, aware that if their country and China have good relationship, does not mean uh, it can guarantee your success in that country. If, For example, if the regime changed, then uh it will impact Chinese investment there. So they are become more and more, uh, uh, how do you say, uh, concerned or uh, have higher awareness of political risk in those countries. Um, second, if I think uh, private companies, they are, um, they are more flexible regarding investment and the project management. Um, so um, some Chinese state-owned companies, they are still have their way of doing things, which may not uh, may may be good in some area, but not good in other uh, geographical areas. So I I think uh, private clients they are more um, flexible regarding investment. Well, I mean, taking that all into account, looking out now five ten years, I'd like to close our discussion now on where you see Belt and Road going. What do you think, if we're going to do this podcast 10 years from now and we're looking back on, you know, 20 years of Belt and Road projects or 17 years, if you will, um, what are we going to see? What do you think this is, where's where's this going? I think it will go in for a long, long time, for several decades. Um, and I will think now we can see lots of failure but I think it's just a learning process, just like a Chinese company going abroad, acquiring foreign companies. Uh, the first few deals, they are all failed because China just Chinese companies just don't know how to invest in foreign countries, how to uh, merge and acquire, acquire foreign companies. And then they learn their license. And now you can see a Chinese company doing quite well in foreign countries. I think the same for one belt, one road. Lots of infrastructure projects, they will fail. But uh, then, uh, which Chinese Chinese companies they uh, acquire knowledge about certain countries and they learn from their failure. So I think um, ten years down the road, I think the success of uh, one bill round will be better than now. Zhu Zheng is a columnist on international affairs for the Chinese financial newspaper Caixin. He's also an independent risk analyst for uh, in emerging markets and a specialist on the Belt and Road. Traveled to more than 40 countries, and he's right now in the middle of a six-month research project in Eastern Europe, traveling in Poland, in Serbia, in Belarusia, looking at the Belt and Road there and sharing a lot of the 
the insights on the Chinese point of view on this. And boy, I cannot emphasize how different it is. And, and uh, Zheng, I just think it's so great that you had the time to join us today. We really appreciate your insights. No problem. Thank you. Kobus, I have to tell you that I think a lot of our listeners in Africa, in Europe, in the United States, uh, and, and, and even in Asia, are going to feel unsatisfied with a lot of Zheng's answers. Uh, but I will also want to tell you that I think Zheng really, really captures what a lot of Chinese people feel. So a couple key things here. Number one, the time horizon. People, they're making mistakes now, but they're going to figure this out down the road. Remember that they're thinking this in generational terms. And I think that, you know, in the U.S. and in Europe, they're thinking this right now, what's going on, debt, failure of this project, that project. They're not looking at that. They're looking at a much longer time horizon, 10, 20, 30, 40 years. Very, very important to understand. And I think that's consistent in China about how they see a lot of geopolitics. And we don't see it the same way. We're looking at much more the immediate thing. The other interesting thing is this, what he said right at the beginning was the, this is just business. This isn't politics. And boy, we don't see that in the West. <laughs> we see those fused together. I think a lot of Chinese people separate politics and business in very, very different terms and have a very different language than we do. And I think that is really one of the major sources of confusion when East and West interact with one another on the issue of politics versus economics. So two key kind of takeaways there. But again, I think he represents and he... I've had countless conversations with Chinese people which mirror exactly what he said. So to press you a little bit on that point, um, how how do you see the split being different between politics and business in, in China and in, say, the U.S.? Well, again, he framed it as politics being we're not going to send troops into Eastern Europe. That is a very crude definition of politics. And one of the things that you constantly hear from Chinese when you push them on this issue is they're saying, well, we haven't colonized other countries the way the West has. And they're, they're kind of interpreting politics and the, the role of the state in militaristic terms. When we hear from people like John Bolton and we hear from the, the U.S. State Department and even Christine Lagarde at the IMF, who are all talking about the political risks associated with debt and the implications on a country's sovereignty, that's a level, level of subtlety that is not being captured in the Chinese debate. The Chinese debate puts it in raw power politics terms, not in the kind of erosion of sovereignty that will eventually come because of too much debt. So again, the definitions are very, very different, and we're not having enough conversations like what we had with Zheng where we're trying to understand how the other sees the world. Because the Chinese worldview is very much like what we heard here, but I think a lot of people are going to walk away from this conversation unsatisfied. Yeah, I completely agree with you. But at the same time, I, I you know, I feel like I also want to press the Western way of thinking on this uh, into, into more specifics, because there has to be a way of speaking about the BRI without it only being about debt. Right, um, you know, because the BRI sure debt debt is debt is a very big part of the BRI, but debt is to a certain extent functions as a tool. Um, you know, all of these all of this infrastructure needs to be built. The 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 fact that 
that these countries are so disconnected is a result of a lack of infrastructure. And so that infrastructure is needed and, and debt then provides a, a way of doing that. But, you know, the, the BRI goes beyond debt. It, you know, it, go, it, it, it looks at a, a different way of thinking about the world and a different way of thinking about how trade works. And so there's, there's a, a refusal to engage with that part of the BRI, you know, kind of with, with the kind of longer-term vision of what all of this trade and interconnectedness will actually produce that I find very frustrating in, in, in the Western kind of discourse around it. Because there is this kind of refusal to even talk about what an alternative trade um, trade architecture could even look like, as if it's some kind of end-of-history situation where we've already reached some kind of perfect trade dispensation and now we should just maintain it. Um, you know, when so much of the world is still excluded from these economies. Um, so so for, for that, I, I frequently find I that, yeah, the, the, the Western discourse is frustrating. No, 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 no. I don't think I agree with you there because... The Americans in particular, and Donald Trump specifically, uh, has a vision on trade. He doesn't believe in things like the World Trade Organization. He doesn't believe in these big multilateral trade uh, groups like the WTO. He believes in bilateral arrangements, and he wants to go one-to-one -one with each country. That's his vision. I mean, we may not agree with it, but that's his vision, and that is an alternative vision to what the Chinese are doing with big multilateral forums like AIIB, the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, like uh, the Belt and Road, which had dozens of leaders in Beijing recently. So it is, a, it is a, you know, a contrarian view on it, but it is a vision that is out there nonetheless. And I think that's important to kind of you know, put up there as a challenge to what the Chinese are trying to do. Uh, three things I want to kind of quickly point people to in terms of some suggested reading, because I think if we want to understand, again, the Chinese mindset on this, there are some in there's some insights that we can get from from Howard French's latest book, Everything Under the Heavens. Uh, and again, he talks about uh, Tianxia and this idea that China stands at the center of the global economy. And this is how China ruled Asia for a very, very long time by using asymmetric power, disproportionate economic power to be able to set the agenda. And there are probably some of those historical instincts that are coming to play in some of this debt diplomacy as well. I also think to list to read uh, Deborah Browdigam's first book. Um, what was the first book? I'm forgetting. The it. Dragon's uh, Gift. The Dragon's Gift, and she really talks about China's own development history in the 1970s, and that is very, very interesting because I think it's instructive on how the Chinese are now engaging other developing countries, where they collateralized oil and coal to sell to Japan in exchange for infrastructure. Does that sound familiar? That's what the Chinese did back in the 1970s. So nothing about what the Chinese are doing today along the Belt and Road is actually unique. So they're drawing on their own history there. And then the other part of it is the fact that and we're going to have an interview coming up uh, very, very shortly talking about the chaos within the Chinese system. And you've mentioned this on many occasions, Kobus, that never assign conspiracy when mediocrity will do just fine. And in the case of the Chinese political and economic system, a lot of people think it's far more centrally controlled and organized than it actually is. Long time ago, you and I interviewed Johanna Malm, who was an expert in uh, Sino-DRC relations in the Congo. And one of the things that she said way back in the day, this is almost 10 years ago, was how Chinese companies acting in the DRC uh, were competing against each other, were not coordinating. They were not going back to Beijing for, for instructions or guidance and whatnot, and they were brutally going after one another. 
So there's a lot more chaos in the Chinese system than I think outsiders give it credit for. So those three points and those three insights into the Chinese thinking and really going back into history are very, very instructive into how the Chinese may be seeing Belt and Road. This, of course, on my part, is projection, but it's something that I think those are good insights and, and, and things that people might want to follow up and read. Final comments from you before we go, Kobus. Um, yeah, you know, I, I completely agree with you that um, that it's it's really important to keep these um, these these aspects in mind, um, and you know, I think that it also then raises the question of to which extent the Chinese system really is fundamentally different, and to which extent it it, it looks different. Um, you know, because you know, as you mentioned, that obviously the the fact that they are state owned companies is very different from from many Western systems. However. That doesn't exclude competition. You know, the 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 competition between major companies for for um, for contracts that is still is a, a key part of the way that these that this Chinese rollout and, and you know kind of outward movement is 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 taking place. So I think it it might be useful for for this debate as it goes on for people to also. To also try and avoid kind of exoticizing the Chinese system, you know, as it frequently is done, you know, to, to look at it as some kind of alien, you know, entity that 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 works completely fundamentally different from 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 other economic systems. Um, yeah, you know, that that that's a, it's a very basic point, but but I think to to look for overlap is frequently more useful. That may be the case, but we've never really seen something like the Chinese system, and I may be out of my depth here historically. I don't know if there's ever been a hybrid authoritarian capitalist government like the Chinese who have had as much power that they have as today. This is a country with the second largest economy, the second largest navy, I think the largest army, not necessarily the best army, but the largest one. They've got an enormous amount of power. And now they're fighting for really control of global communication standards in 5G, in artificial intelligence, in machine learning. And that is something that the West has really never confronted. The Soviets challenged the Americans uh, just with raw power, nuclear weapons, but they never really challenged them as in, in, in the myriad of ways that China is today in terms of its status and its share of global trade and its share of, uh, of the global economy as a whole. So I think in some ways fear is a big part of why the United States and Europe is responding because we've never really seen a competitor like the Chinese with an authoritarian capitalist model. Well, you know, maybe, yeah, no, sure. I mean, the, the authoritarian capitalist model part, you know, I, I can see what you mean. I mean, there there are overlaps with with some, uh, you know, early early stages of of Asian of other Asian powers, but in terms of its of this kind of complete overlap between military, economic, you know, kind of communications, etc., other power. I think for that reason, it's really important to look at everything from an African perspective because Africa has faced, uh, you know, kind of powers like that before, and they called the West. You know? That's right. So, <laughs> no, fair enough. That, is, uh, that is indeed a fair point. So we'd love to hear what you think. Uh, Kobus and I have kind of veered off course a little bit into the depths of history, but it is interesting to try and interpret what does Belt and Road actually mean. It's a pickup of our conversation last week. Um, we don't really have the answer. I won't pretend to have the answer. Uh, I really enjoyed all the feedback that we got uh, from from people from all over the world who gave us their interpretation and what their experiences are, and particularly trying to understand this through Chinese eyes, which is something that's very, very difficult to do because 
of the kind of opacity that exists in how the Chinese commute with communicate with the outside world on Belt and Road and other issues. So let us know what you think. Uh, you can reach us by email, eric at chinaafricaproject.com or cobus at chinaafricaproject.com. We love getting your email. I'm responding oh, within 24 or 48 hours almost on every email. They're coming in fast and furious, but I love hearing from you, so please do send me a message. You can also find me on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, all the different places, Cobus as well. We're there, and we'd love to engage with you on this discussion and pretty much anything else that we've done in our previous shows as well. It's always great to hear from you. So we'll be back again next week with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. For Cobus Van Staden, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Gobas at Stadinsky or Eric at E. Olander. And be sure to sign up for the weekly China in Africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com.